You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Genius Podcast. I have Isabel Lensley. Uh, she's at the uh, Laboratory of Neuroepigenetics. Uh, she's a professor in neuroepigenetics at the medical facility of the University of Zurich, Department of Health Science and Technology, also the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. So Isabel, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing good, yeah. Thank you. Yourself? So, so I know about epigenetics, I guess, is... Um, the access or the changing of the ability of genes to be expressed, you know, expressed more, expressed less. But what is neuroepigenetics? Neuroepigenetics is the ensemble of epigenetic uh, processes, factors or mechanisms which exist in nerve cells, in the brain and in the uh, peripheral uh, neural system. It's, it's basically the same basic mechanism as in other cells or organs or tissues, but uh, we focus uh, essentially on the brain. I guess methylation and histone, yeah. deacetylization, that kind of thing. Yes, uh, DNA methylation, RNA methylation, histone modifications, uh, acetylation, methylation, phosphorylation, and so on. But also, uh, more recently, uh, RNA, non-coding RNA. What circumstances have you observed epigenetic changes to happen you know, in, the, in the, the neurological sense? And then what gets regulated typically? Everything, I mean, a, a cell itself, uh, whether in the brain or whether in other tissue, needs epigenetic factors uh, to function, to, to be created, to differentiate, to grow and to function. Uh, so there is n- nothing really special about epigenetic factors or mechanisms in the brain. Uh, what's special is their relationship to brain functions. And in the brain, I mean, there are many epigenetic marks or factors, mechanisms which exist naturally whenever, I mean, if, if the brain is at rest or whenever it's activated, but uh, there are <clears throat> specific factors which are regulated or which are uh, turned on or off when we learn uh, some new information, for instance, when there is a fear, a fear memory or any kind of, uh, of memory. Um, so there is some specificity about um, epigenetic mechanism on the brain in the brain, but uh, there are many also, many of these mechanisms which are uh, similar as elsewhere in the body. 
what uh, what are some specific areas of your study? Are you looking at people under learning environments, under stress environments? What are you focusing on? I'm, I'm really mostly interested in epigenetic inheritance, actually. My chair is called neuroepigenetics because I'm a neurobiologist uh, by training. But uh, since um, now f- more than 15 years, I'm mostly interested in epigenetic inheritance, which is how life experiences uh, affect our uh, health, whether our mental health or physical health, and how these effects can be transmitted across uh, generations. Um, so this calls on mechanisms uh, which depend on epigenetic factors because the environment, whether uh, the social environment, what we eat, uh, what we do, uh, physical exercise and so on, the endocrine disruptors or drugs we are exposed to, uh, they act or they modify the epigenome or epigenetic factors um, and they leave uh, traces which affect the brain and sometimes across generations. All those cells in their body, but the cells that uh, are, that form that are part of our germline are the only ones that can carry forward any epigenetic marks, right? When we talk about true epigenetic inheritance, yes, the alteration, the changes in epigenetic factors have to be in germ cells. Yes. Are you saying that? Okay. If I, um, I don't know, I experience terrible anxiety throughout my whole life, let's say, because I have just horrible living conditions. Are you saying that? Is there evidence that my children or grandchildren may experience that same thing if they've inherited the essentially the anxiety affects the anxiety because it's changed me epigenetically throughout my life, for instance? Yeah, I mean there is a lot of evidence that uh, some symptoms or some diseases can be passed uh, from parent to children, sometimes across generations in human. <clears throat> so this is this is known. What's not known yet in human is whether this um, this is based or this depends on changes in epigenetic factors. Um, so there are correlative. There is correlative evidence in humans, but not causal evidence yet. The evidence exists, but only in experimental animals, in mice, uh, mostly in mice, and some some uh, results in uh, in rats. Uh, so in mice and rats, uh, it's known that if you are exposed to a trauma, in a, if the mice are exposed to trauma in early life, or, the, or if they are exposed to, uh, they are fed a high-fat diet, this will alter their health, mental and physical health, their behavior uh, for trauma, and the symptoms will be transmitted to the following generation. And thus, this is causally uh, due to uh, changes in epigenetic factors in the germ cells. Um, evidence in human is, is still uh, lacking because, I mean, you imagine that it's not easy to do this type of causal analysis uh, in humans. Because each cell type in a mouse's body, for instance, would experience, you know, an effect differently. But again, it seems to, in terms of inheritance, all come down to the germ cells and how they are affected. So, I mean... <laughs> You know, it's odd. I guess they're, they're well, they're affected directly but indirectly. They're not affected necessarily, you know. Uh, yes, you're completely yeah. right. How would you describe it? I'm sorry. <clears throat> yes, you are completely right that they may be affected directly or indirectly. I think it depends on the type of exposure and on the time period, the time window of exposure, and on the duration of exposure. You imagine that a young animal or a young human where the gonads so the testes or the ovaries are not completely formed yet. Uh, they are not as protected as in the adult. There is, there is a blood testis 
barrier, for instance, in, in humans and in mammals in general. So it's a, it's a cellular barrier which protects germ cells. And this barrier is not completely formed in early life. So in, at birth and uh, in, in humans for a couple of years after birth. So this is a window of, uh, of time when there is higher sensitivity of the germ cells. Um, and they may be uh, affected directly, well, directly by blood, for instance, or if the uh, individual is exposed to endocrine disruptors, the endocrine disruptors <clears throat> may cross the, the blood testis uh, barrier or what's the uh, forming the testis barrier information and will reach uh, the germ cells, the developing germ cells. The same is true for trauma or, or stress. You know, there are many hormones, including stress hormones, uh, corticoids, which will be uh, released and they may uh, reach germ cells. Um, and have an effect on in, on these germ cells. In terms of short-term and long-term effects, let's say, um, like in a rat, how long does it take for a new sperm to form in the male frame? I mean, in mice, it takes about uh, 30, 35 to 40 days. Uh, in human, I think it's a little uh, longer. So it, it's it's true that, I mean, the, the time of gener- if If exposure happens early in life, it's likely that the the germ cells themselves will be affected. And if the germ cells are affected, it may be that all cells produced from these germ cells will have the uh, alterations. Because yeah, I can see a couple different ways. So you're right. If it happens early in life, yeah, the entire, every single sperm that's created in the mouse from then on may be yeah. affected. Yeah. But if you're... Um, you know, let's say, I don't know, a, a, a stimulus, a negative stimulus happens to a mouse right before it happens to start forming, you know, a sperm cell that's going to yeah. be the one that makes it, that makes the female mouse pregnant. That could be an effect and that could maybe happen if it happens in, in one very short time period, in one day. Or yeah. if you just, even if you have a short-term chronic exposure, let's say it's for a month and a half or a month, mm-hmm. and that just happens to be the worst time for it to happen. Mm-hmm. The mouse could still maybe not be completely changed, but you know, but yep. pass on uh, the negative experience. Absolutely, no, absolutely. There are different levels. It's uh, it, it, there may be a temporary effect of exposure on germ cells. So one offspring generated at some point shortly after exposure may be affected, and offspring generated uh, much later or years after years in human or months after in mice will not be affected. Uh, that it's very true. Now, there is also the question of inter versus transgenerational. You know, depending on the severity of the exposure and on um, on when the germ cells are affected, this may be totally embedded into the germ cells in a, to a point to be transmitted further, uh, not just to the offspring, but also to the grand offspring. Yeah, like I guess, you know, it's, it's known there was the Dutch starvation winter Yep. You know, mm-hmm. during World War II, and I guess the the children were documented to have uh, you know the epigenetic changes. I don't know about grandchildren, but uh, yeah. you know if that study's gotten to that point. Yes, yeah, but in this study, you know, it's uh, pregnant women. I mean, some women were pregnant; others, they were the the babies were born already. But uh, in in the babies who are born, they own germ cells were already uh, exposed, right, in their body. Um, so that the, their own children have effects can somehow be understood if there, is, there was uh, indeed direct exposure. 
Now, the, the question is whether the further generation where not, not a single cell, not even the germ cells uh, that give rise to them, even if it was a, a germ cell in a child, uh, if it has not been exposed, then if, the, if there are symptoms, it means that there is a transgenerational inheritance. And that's what we see in our mice, for instance. In our mice, uh, in pups exposed to trauma, some of the symptoms are uh, expressed in the fourth and sometimes even in the fifth generation. So in animals which have not been at all um, exposed, not even the germ cell they come from have, has been exposed. So there is a very big difference between intergenerational and transgenerational. Well, there just seems to be like an adaptation that the, uh, the cells make to their environment. So have you seen the, uh, the effects um, die out after a, few, a certain number of generations, depending yes. on the effect? Yes, indeed. Uh, depends on the effects. In, in our model, for instance, depression uh, is, uh, affects the third generation, but it's no longer observed in the fourth generation, while risk-taking is still present in the fifth and a little bit in the sixth uh, generation. Uh, other symptoms, they disappear after the first generation. So th th there is a little bit of uh, every possibility. I think it's, uh, uh, we don't know why. P either, I mean, it depends probably on the type of genes which are recruited for this type of behavior, on the vulnerability or sensitivity on the likelihood to be uh, affected epigenetically um, and it may also have to be with the uh, importance of the uh, of the behavior itself risk taking risk taking is a very kind of primitive type of behavior uh, which can be both sides it can it can be dangerous to be too risk taking but at the same time uh, it can be beneficial to be quick and to be prepared to take risk so you see, it's a, it's a very vital and fundamental type of behavior. Um, it could be why this is uh, particularly uh, affected by environmental uh, factors. I, I don't know. I, I'm just speculating here, but it's quite striking to see that yeah, yeah. Is, is this type of, of behavior which is affected so, for so long. At least for DNA, <laughs> I know DNA can be sequenced, but can you sequence um, a mouse, for instance, and capture all the epigenetic marks is that even uh, part available yet well we can capture all rna we can capture all dna methylation but we cannot capture all histone modifications because there are just too many um even dna methylation capture it all uh, whole genome bisulfide sequencing uh, is requ required um and it's i mean it's almost 100 percent. but then how, what we do from this data, you know, there is quite inter-individual variability um, and intercellular uh, variability. If you take two liver cells next to each other, uh, they, they will have different, uh, different, slightly different DNA methylation profile. So what to conclude from, uh, even if we are able to capture all these uh, epigenetic factors, I mean, how to link uh, this one or that one to the behavior or to a particular symptom is, is very complicated. It's just impossible for the moment. Well, what, what kind of stress do you put the, uh, the mice under uh, to induce the changes? It's a combination, it's a combination of unpredictable maternal separation. So we take the pups one day after they are born uh, and we separate them from their mom every day for three hours, anytime during the day. In addition to this, during these three hours of separation, we stress the mother. 
So anytime during the three hours, so it's unpredictable again, we put her uh, on two different stressor, one, one stressor. It's not the same stressor every day. It's random as well. Uh, so it's, she's uh, not only stressed by being away from her pups, but she's also stressed uh, physically by being placed either in a cold water or in, in a tube, restrained tube. So it's really a combination of a physiological, emotional, physical uh, stress or trauma. It's, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite traumatic uh, for the pups. The, the mother t- takes care of her pups when, she, when they are reunited, reunited, but it's just the maternal care is, is hectic, it's uh, unreliable, uh, and it's not, uh, it's not as good. The quantity is there, but it's not as good quality as, uh, as it should be. So there is a, some kind of neglect and uh, poor uh, poor maternal uh, behaviors. Are you looking for changes in the pups or the mother? In the pups, essentially. When they are adult and in their own pups and the pups of the pups. So that's where the multiple generations uh, are. But why stress the mother then? Why not just take the pups away and leave the mother alone to hang out and then you bring them back? Because that yeah. seems like that adds in another factor. Because it's not sufficient to produce uh, symptoms which are severe enough to be transmitted across multiple generations. And, you know, in real life, if we want to be close to human life, uh, you know, violence or hectic families or, you know, traumatic uh, events uh, related to war, to conflicts or very complicated situations, uh, usually it's just not, it's not just one thing. Uh, it's a combination of factors. So that's why we really wanted to, to reca- recapitulate uh, things which can happen in humans. Yeah, but the problem is, how is the mother feeding the pups? Is, are, they, you know, are they feeding from her? Is she, you know, are they breastfeeding? And if so, she could be producing all kinds of different substances and, and things that they're consuming that's changing them in a different way than you think. Oh, yes, absolutely. But it's no problem for us because what we are interested in is whatever is induced in them whether this will alter the, the behavior and physiology and whether this will be transmitted to the uh, following generations. So we, it doesn't matter how it's, this is induced. Can you bottle feed, essentially? Um, I mean, uh, well, the reason I ask is uh, that may be the mechanism that really, I mean, it would be very hard to pick it apart later. You know, what if you, I don't know, like will pups feed from another mother? Or not, will she reject them? And if so, again, can you hand feed them at a certain point? Because no, you hand yeah. feed them non-stressed yeah. milk, you know, that would probably be dramatically different than stressed milk. Maybe it's, maybe it's not just the, the licking and the grooming behavior. Maybe it's the, the food mm. they're eating too. Mm. No, no, you are completely right. Um, it's, it's difficult to do. You cannot, uh, breast, uh, you cannot uh, bottle feed uh, pups. And, uh, you know, feeding in mice, it's, it's uh, almost constant. They feed almost all the time. Uh, so if we use a controlled mother to feed them, it's, it will be as if they have been raised raised by a controlled mother. That would be, and we would need to separate the mother as well. So that would be a bit too complicated, I think. But yeah, you are right. We checked, we checked actually the milk of the uh, stressed mothers and uh, there are alterations in this milk. Yeah, I mean, so that changes the nutrition. Can you, well, maybe you could attack it from that angle. Yeah, um, yes. What what uh, changes in the milk, and maybe you can introduce that. Yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, that would be a, hmm. <laughs> again that would be a bit difficult just to feed them with uh, milk from stressed mothers. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I, no one has ever done this. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a complicated problem. <laughs> 
Well, can you, have you been able to analyze the milk to see what's changed? Yes. No, yes, we did. We analyzed the microRNAs in, in the milk uh, and we, we saw that there are changes. Whether this is sufficient, you know, to be uh, leading to the symptoms that we see, perhaps it, it probably contributes to the metabolic symptoms that we observe because we see that the glucose regulation is altered, there is a dyslipidemia in these animals, but whether this induces the risk-taking or the depressive uh, phenotype and the uh, antisocial behaviors, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It could be, but that would be quite uh, surprising. But here's another issue, is that there's probably a microbial constituent in the milk. So what if it's the stress in the mother changes the microbial attachment to the milk, changes the mix of the microbes and their metabolite, and that's also changing the milk? Yes, that's another possibility. Uh, we looked at the microbiome of the pups and uh, the offspring. We did not look at the microbiome of the uh, stressed mothers themselves. Uh, but you are right that it could be a contributing uh, factor. But again, you know, the questions that we are asking are not really at this level. They may be at some point, but we are really more interested in how the resulting symptoms, regardless of the way they are induced, regardless of the mechanism of the induction, how, whether and how, whether we know uh, that's yes, and how they are uh, transmitted across multiple generations. Okay, yeah. I got you. I'm, I'm getting too down into the into the biology of it, but what? Yeah. Um, so, so what have you noticed so far? What kind of correlations do you see? Correlations? Uh, you mean in between generations, or in? Be- yeah, you said that some will last longer. The risk-seeking behavior yeah. lasts a lot longer than you know the other yeah. effects. Um, are you trying to characterize the intensity of the stress, the duration of the stress, the? I mean, what, what are some of the factors that you want to piece together and figure out? No, we, we are really interested in, in, in the mechanism uh, of alteration of germ cells, what happens in germ cells which explain uh, the transmission across generations. Uh, regarding the effect of different levels of stress, yes, we did this at the very beginning when we uh, established this model, uh, almost 20 years ago now. Uh, we tried different combinations, you know, predictable uh, separation, unpredictable separation, predictable stress, unpredictable maternal stress combination or no combination of uh, stress to the pups and stress to the mothers. And really it's the combination of all these uh, parameters, unpredictable maternal separation plus unpredictable maternal stress, which was strong enough to give symptoms which were transmitted to the following generations. If you don't uh, make that unpredictable, for instance, if everything is predictable, uh, happening at the same time of the day, there is no transmission to the following generation. Um, so, yeah, we try, we test, we, I mean, we know that uh, a real, a really strong trauma is necessary to induce symptoms uh, which are transmitted. Are uh, males affected differently than females? Globally, not. Um, but behavior is different in females and males. Uh, but, but globally, uh, I mean, most symptoms are observed in both uh, females and males. But for instance, for social behaviors, you know, social behaviors are different in males and, and females. So the consequences of this trauma is a little bit different. While in females, we see mostly uh, altered social recognition. In males, that will be more uh, antisocial behaviors. Uh, while males will be uh, kind of not more aggressive, but they, uh, they can't really respond properly to aggressive uh, peers, 
uh, in females, we don't see any uh, change in aggressivity, aggressiveness. But overall, but they have the same comparable uh, phenotypes. What about duration of the effects uh, through generation? How many generational effects are there? Same for men and male and female? Yes, the, 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 the only, uh, well, most symptoms, I mean, all symptoms are present consistently to the third generation. Some disappear at the fourth, and uh, really, again, only risk, uh, risk-taking is present uh, to the fifth or the sixth. Metabolic alterations, we have not yet tested them systematically in the third, fourth, and fifth. Uh, well, yes and no on small cohorts, but uh, those, they are still present in fourth generation, but not in the fifth anymore. So there's so much to look at. I mean, I, you know, well, here I am. Who am I? I'm giving you advice. But um, I would think that what is the organ that produces the, the sperm in, in mice, for instance? What's it called? That's testes. The testes. Okay, testes. So I don't know how many cell, ty- how many cell types are there in the testes. Oh, hundreds. Really? Just in the testes? Um, well, is different well, it depends because, you know, there is a, a complex, uh, I mean, differentiation of, uh, of uh, depends what you call cell types. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Germ cells, they can be in many different states because they, they, okay. they go on differentiation. I guess one thing you could do to focus is take um, a particular cell type, you know, in, in one of these mice and uh, stress it and see if you can sample some of the cells, you know, every day or every week for a time period and then try to look at at least, let's say, their methylation pattern, you know, mm-hmm. compare that same cell type, same cell, just different stress points and see what differences you see, maybe to see if there's uh, tons of changes or just a few and maybe that would help to start clue you in on uh, yeah. you know, areas of the DNA or other areas that are affected. Yeah, no, it all depends on what you are interested in. We are not interested in the acute effects of stress. We are interested in long-term effects of stress. So we stress the animals when they are pups. We wait weeks and months before checking them. So we really want to make sure that we look only at the, the, the things which are persistent and which affect them when they are adult, even if they were induced when they are pups. Ah, I see. Interesting. Are you able to look at um, you know, the function of their other organs to see how, you know, so the, the stress has all essentially been condensed in the, you know, in the germ cells. Now a new generation comes, they carry forward the stresses. Mm-hmm. But I would think that all the cells of their body, all their cell types have been changed, not just their germ cells. Mm-hmm. Maybe somehow you can see differences in organ function well, yes. in the succeeding generations. Absolutely. That's what we have uh, seen, actually. I mean, we see that pancreas, uh, I mean, the, the metab- metabolism is, is quite severely affected. Glucose uh, is dysregulated, insulin also, lipid metabolism is dis- dysregulated. So pancreas, liver, I mean, all the metabolic organs, fat, adipose tissue has a number of changes. Bone has many changes as well. Uh, hematopoietic stem cells are altered, so the immune system is affected. So basically everywhere we look, we also looked at uh, skin and skin innovation is affected. Everywhere we looked, we saw uh, an effect. Wow, I didn't realize it's that pervasive. It's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, you imagine that a, a young individual is, is exposed to chronic stress for a very critical period during life, uh, you know, in early childhood. This can only have dramatic effects everywhere, right? Because every tissue is, is being developed. Um, and uh, yeah, this, the, it's a critical period for, for every organism, human or, or animals. 
Yeah. So what what would be a, a thrilling result for you to figure out over the next few years? Mm, there are two major um, levels. The first one is really to try to identify all of the major uh, or the most important epigenetic alterations, which are which can be induced persistently by exposure uh, and. So identify the epigenetic factors in germ cells, in particular, both males and females. You know, we've been working on this model since 20 years. So it took us 20 years to be at a stage where we have a solid model, which is reproducible, uh, which has consistent symptoms transmitted across multiple generations, and where we can really start start to screen different epigenetic factors consistently across tissues. So it took us all this time to get to this stage. Um, So we would like now to really uh, enlarge the catalog of uh, all the changes that we see in in germ cells uh, in males and females. Uh, That will take another couple of years because in particular for uh, male germ cells, because there are all these different stages, you know, from the germ cell, the germ stem cell itself, so there are stem cells that are called spermatogonia cells to the mature sperm. So there are many things that we have to look at how an epigenetic alteration, which is induced in the stem cell, how does it evolve, which changes stay. Uh, and we believe that there is a kind of a cascade. You know, there is a, an initial change which is induced by exposure and it will uh, transfer the signal to another change which will then transfer to another type of change. So it's, it's really a cascade of events and we don't really know how this uh, transfer of information, of pathological information is done in the epigenome, in germ cells. Um, the second level of analysis is how these epigenetic alterations are induced in germ cells. What is the link between being exposed to a trauma, for instance, or high-fat diet? Well, we are mostly interested in trauma because, because it's non-invasive. You know, it's all psychological. It's all driven by the brain. Uh, it's more complex, but it's, uh, it's, it's a lot more, I mean, it's very relevant to human beings. So what, by which mechanism is being exposed to a trauma when you are a child is going to alter the epigenome in your germ cells in a p- persistent manner um, to alter your, your future uh, gametes. Um, so we have started to uh, work on this question a couple of years ago. Um, and to, I mean, we postulated that blood is probably the mediator of the signals between the brain, which captures the trauma, the stress, and the germ cells. Uh, and we have, I mean, very interesting data showing that indeed there are factors in blood, fatty acids in particular, which are significantly altered across generations and uh, which are uh, powerful ligands to receptors which exist on germ cells. So they are perfect candidates to be signaling molecules in between the blood and germ cells. A couple of quick questions here. So how long do do the pups feed or are cared by by the mother typically? And then I guess mice live, what, an average of, what, three years or something? A little less, two and a half years. And uh, so then... Yeah, the, the pups, they are uh, weaned at 21 days, but they start feeding themselves when they are 14, 15 days. Okay, and then when does the stress stop versus uh, when does the, is the pup going to breed? The stress is between day one to day 14 of life. Then they are weaned, they are weaned so it's two weeks of stress. Then they are weaned 
So there is one, after the two weeks of stress, there is one week when they are with their mother and there is no stress. Then they are weaned when they are 21 days old. And then we test their behavior and metabolism and so on when they are adult, which is uh, starting at two and a half, three months of age. Well, at what age do they breed? So you they can test the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the next generation. We breed them generally when they are three, between three and five months old. Okay. And then it's another yeah, few days. And then you'll, t- you'll test the, the, the next generation of pups at what, 21 days or two months or something like that? No, also in adulthood. I mean, it depends. We have also collected uh, germ cells, for instance, and blood when they are pups. But uh, most of our analyses are done in adulthood because we cannot do everything. I mean, it's, it would be too much, too much. Right. But in general, after the stress has stopped, it's at least a few months. Yeah. And you're still seeing it, uh, yeah. you know, transgenerational effect. Okay, exactly. I got you. Yeah. I mean, oh. that's the point. It's the power of the model. It's really the power of the model because it really shows that there are changes which can really persist. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Hmm. I guess it makes well, it makes sense in people too. If you've had uh, childhood trauma, it can last you your uh, your whole life, and it can affect yes. your children as well. Yeah, exactly. Huh, interesting. All right. So, what, what um, I guess for people that want to learn more, what's the best way for them to get in contact and look at your research, read papers, that kind of thing? Uh, well, they can find me in Google. We have a uh, I have a website. My lab has a website with my email. If they need uh, advice on on literature, they can uh, email me or for those who are, have access to PubMed, uh, all our papers are on PubMed. Okay, and your last name is M-A-N-S-U-Y. Yes. Okay, very good. So people can search and find you. Mm-hmm. Any any last uh, items that you want to discuss that I haven't asked you? Mm, no, just uh, maybe just the importance of this type of research uh, for human beings um, and for the concept of uh, heredity. Because that's it's uh, you know it really changes the way people uh, look at or think at uh, at uh, inheritance or what we can uh, pass to our children, and it's, it's quite unconventional because it goes against yeah. the, uh, the classical view of heredity being only in the genome or in genes. And this type of research right. shows that it's not the case. It's it's not new, you know. The, it's not us who put this uh, hypothesis uh, forward. It's been uh, shown, uh, demonstrated uh, by naturalists already in the eighteenth, uh, nineteenth century. Even the Bible has some examples of uh, of uh, tr- transmission of uh, life experiences across generations. Uh, so it's something which uh, many many people have uh, observed, and which was kind of ignored or even criticized uh, at the time of the domination of the DNA and uh, the old DNA, old genetic <laughs> decades that we have gone through, uh, which have been quite detrimental for epigenetic, I think, unfortunately. Um, and with all the hope that uh, sequencing the, gen- the, the genome will, will, give the, will reveal the secret of, uh, of life, <laughs> uh, which is completely wrong indeed. Uh, so I think epigenetic uh, research has, has to catch up the, uh, the delay <laughs> and the, the, lack of, uh, the lack of knowledge of, of people and the fact that uh, it's not even taught at, at school. I mean, most people... Now it's a bit better. It's getting a bit better these past years. Uh, but most people are not really aware. Everyone will know what a chromosome, what a gene is, more or less. But people will not be aware of what epigenetic is. And it's, uh, it's a big lack of knowledge. I think it's, uh, this should be fixed. Yeah, one, one last thing to ask you. Um, I don't know. I mean, you probably don't have time or any of that. But have you ever tried to teach any of the, uh, 
the rats anything or the mice anything, you know, how to run mazes and become an you know, expert at it and see if any learning process gets transmitted to the next generation, whether positive or negative. Any negative association with something or get a positive process when they learn something and look for yeah. evidence of that in the next generation. They have people who, who did this. I think I, I, this is, we, one can consider this possible as long as germ cells will be affected, right? And whether if you learn a poem or a mouse learns, uh, you know, how to solve a maze, is this going to affect the germ cell or send a signal to the germ cell? I don't think so. Uh, there is a group, uh, the group of uh, Kerry Ressler a couple of years ago who published a paper where they took males and they gave them a food shock and at the same time had them smell a, some, a specific odor. And they claim that uh, the odor, I mean, the, the progeny and the progeny of the progeny had a, an increased sensitivity to the odor uh, due to the uh, food shock associated to it. And they, I mean, people claim that it was a memory which was kind of uh, transmitted across generations. I don't know, this, uh, this study has not been reproduced yet. Uh, the data, I mean, the statistical analysis in this paper have been quite criticized. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I can't say yes. I can't say no. I, I would need to. I know it's a very speculative area. I was just curious yeah. if. You know. But I, I think as long as as long as the germ cells uh, are not affected, or I, I don't think that any learning which happens in the brain is going to influence the germ cells, except okay. if, if except if the learning is associated with something you know which will release stress hormone or something very very. Uh, sharp or very uh, abundant or whatever, very adverse, and which will send a signal to the germ cells. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Isabel, it's been uh, good talking to you. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.